Day 185. We are pushing on through the dread desert waste of bundled movies. Far ahead of us, on the crest, we can see yet more to come. But here we are and here we labor, hoping that nothing so strange, so arduous, might make its presence known. I tell you, Captain, we cannot do it. We cannot make another full-length feature film. <laughs> I have no idea who that's racist against, but... <laughs> Alright, so this is the Disney Animated Cannonball. I'm Talon, he, him. I'm Fox, she, her. And we are still in that period of Disney releasing complete crap. Ooh, it was not a fun time. (laughs) Anyone who wants to say, oh man, Disney have really lost it. No, they haven't. Not until they're back at this level. I think very few, like, Disney has such a good reputation from its films from the period immediately after this drought uh, that people, I think, clean forget that they only made, like, four good films before they descended into this. Yeah. This, this. Yeah, this. So, for anyone not familiar with this, what we are talking about now is a pair of movies that are bundled up compilations of short cartoons they put together for either this is specifically which is a bit weird but also for screening in cinemas before other stuff so i don't know that these are ever screened as shorts individually oh god then they've got no only released as features sorry uh i i don't think these were ever screened as shorts in cinemas i i think they only were part of the the feature release so they don't have any excuse well, wow. I'm pretty sure their excuse is they were almost broke at this point. Yeah. Who? So. <laughs> you know, they made a Dumbo, but then they had to just get out whatever they could. And if that was Fantasia, but incredibly cheap, then that's yeah. what it was going to be. So we got through Saludos Amigos and the Three Caballeros. And now we're on uh, Make Mine Music. Make Mine Music. And it's follow-up. Not Merry Melodies, that's Warner Brothers. <laughs> uh, no, Merry Melodies is Disney. Merry Melodies was Disney trying to do Looney Tunes Oof. with the Mickey characters. Oh no, that's what's coming up next, isn't it? No, they didn't do a Merry Melodies feature. Uh, but we are today doing Make My Music, which is a, a shorts compilation, and Fun and Francy Free, which is more of a double feature. Ah, uh, yes. two half a movie's worth of story. <sighs> and, uh, well, we're, we're not in good territory. Well... Start by telling everyone how much trouble we had watching this stupid movie. So, I don't know if you're aware, but we are in Australia, and we're used to some oddness when it comes to watching movies internationally. There is some stuff that's, through different licensing agents, doesn't get here, or gets here late, or gets here through a service you've never heard of, and is named after someone in the streaming service's cousin. It's, <laughs> it's a weird scene. Boy, howdy. Remember when we just would have to wait a year or two for TV shows? Yeah. Um, it was such a big deal in 2014 when the deal was finally struck with, I think it's AMC, that they would broadcast The Walking Dead here in Australia at the same time as they would broadcast it in America. Because the original concern was that Australians would watch it early and then spoil it for Americans. <laughs> So they didn't screen it here. Oh, like earlier in the day? Yep. Oh my god. So they didn't screen it here for a two-week period to give Americans a baffle. And the result is, Australians pirated it in mass. fucking straight 
we did. The, That's what you get. The finale of Breaking Bad, Felina, was pirated. And I want to remind you, at this point, Australia has a population of like 20 million people. The, par- the finale of Felina on the day it dropped was pirated about 10 million times by one torrent website's numbers. <laughs> now, that might mean half the country is pirating it, or it might mean a lot of the country is pirating it multiple times because it's Breaking Bad. But it does kind of underscore the pointlessness of trying to control what is ultimately now a country of thieves. <laughs> I mean, I don't find this hilarious at all. I respect the intellectual property rights of corporations that have more money than we could reasonably dream of our, in our entire lives. This is not a hilarious way to kick capitalism in the dick whatsoever. Absolutely not. And we, of course, have never watched something that we did not pay full rights for. Of course not. Or sing in the shower. We, we even make sure that our neighbors can't see in the window. Because that uh-huh. would be broadcasting. And every time we do that kazoo riff at the start of one of these episodes, we pay full royalties for that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You can't see the long, slow wanking gesture I'm making here. I wonder if I can make a fart noise on a- You absolutely can. Let's not push our limits. (laughs) Point is that we're used to seeing when we go looking for things on the internet, them not being there. And Disney Plus has largely, in part because Disney is a uh, a, a mega monopoly- of preposterous proportions. Why are they? Largely, it's a simple matter of if it's a Disney thing, it's on Disney+. Plus. So this includes all the stuff that they've acquired through Fox and all the stuff they've acquired through other swallowing up of other things. Like if I want to go watch a Muppet movie, we've got it on Disney+, Plus, so <laughs> right. that's there. The only stuff we expect not to see is stuff that's brand new and they're giving it its fucking cable cooldown period. Like anybody in this country has cable. Yeah, which is to say... Nobody we know. Which is to say, anybody but old people. Yeah. Um, the Therefore, imagine our surprise when we went to watch uh, Make My Music on Disney Plus and couldn't find it. This boggles my mind. Like, I understand why Song of the South would be missing. Yeah. It's famously controversial. I get why they'd want to just, you know, stuff that one in a closet and not make it freshly available. And we have seen movies and features on Disney that have uh, the warning up front saying, hey, there are depictions of things we're not cool with anymore. Uh, They did that at the front of Three Caballeros, which I think is mostly tied to all the smoking and also the harassment of women. But in this case, we didn't get a warning saying, hey, this isn't what we're cool with now. It's just not there. And it's baffling for Make My Music because this is not, like, this is not a hot button Disney movie. This is not, nobody fucking knows about this movie nobody cares about make mine music yeah and frankly it's one of their least offensive you know funny haha let's animate a bunch of stuff that we one one of the least (laughs) i'm not saying there's no yikes story this episode (laughs) oh boy we'll get to that but like broadly speaking for things that disney made in the 40s that were supposed to be funny this is not even in like the top five most awful things yeah. Um, however, much like the other, much like Three Caballeros and uh, Saludos Amigos, there's not a lot of structure here. Like, there's no overarching story to talk about. So we're going to do the same thing we did with Fantasia. Oh God, no! This is extremely. We have Fantasia at home. <sighs> yeah. This doesn't even have the the broad theme of like we would very much like to pander to non-US Americans for once. Yeah. This is just a very blip of a of a giant finger quotes for the benefit of the listener theatrical feature 
Yeah, if, if you thought, what would Saludos Amigos look like if we stripped away the only thing giving it a sense of personality? Yep, that's a 100% fair description. So, we're just going to run through the movies in section by section and talk about anything we want to talk about on the way through. In which case, I'd like to start with the credits. Oh, yes? Yes, one of the writers for this movie is a guy with the name Dick Humor. <laughs> <clears throat> it's not fine. It's not his fault. <laughs> it's not nice to laugh at people whose name is Dick. It's not. But I think that when your full name that you sign business cards with is Dick Humor, we're allowed to laugh because I think you did that on purpose. I no, I can't improve on that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, he made a better joke than we ever could. Yep. All right, moving on. <laughs> uh, so first segment, Blue Bayou. Yeah, this is a perfectly nice, pretty, restful animation to. A 40s ballad that will make you fall asleep if you give it the chance. <laughs> it's very pretty to look at. I, I yeah. like to work with water and, you know, egrets are just lovely to look at. That's yeah. It's heron, not an egret. I don't know. It's an egret to me. It was herons. you got to remember, Disney lived with no egrets. Oh, no. This is Ooh. what happens when I have nothing to say. Boo that man. <laughs> yeah, this is a pretty unremarkable uh, segment. Uh, I, I do find it interesting that they introduce it as a tone poem. Yeah. I uh, don't know what the difference between that and a song is, but I don't know. Maybe a, a listener who is appropriately nerdy in that field will chime in to correct me. Well, I, I, I don't seek to correct you, but in this case, I think I grasp what they mean by it, which is to say it is the whole of the composition of the music and the visuals that it is not about communicating a message or a story, but is rather about giving you a expression of a mood uh an example i think from music is an etude which is this is just to demonstrate this practice whereas this is this is just to demonstrate this experience how does that factor into it being different from a song because it is a song as well like it's true in this case the case of tone poem referring to the song and the visuals together Hmm. as their own thing yeah yes visuals famously associated with poems i so, tone as a collective. Yeah. Yeah, you could be right. It's like how I've referred to Hotline Miami, which is very relevant and appropriate to this conversation, as a ludic <laughs> poem. 30 seconds of Hotline Miami in the middle of one of these films. <laughs> Just <laughs> all the kids crying. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think this movie had plenty to make kids cry. Oh, boy. Uh, oh, you know what I will say right up front? Uh, one way in which I honestly like this a bit more than Fantasia. Uh, which is that we don't get narration between segments. Yes. I much preferred the, the title cards approach to let's have this tiresome chode talk about it for five minutes before we get to see it. Yeah, I, I understand it builds with a storybook feeling, but I come to the opinion, based on watching these movies, that narrators are non-ideal movie components. Oh, the narrators within the segments are... Probably the worst bits of these films. But yeah, I just like not having them explained to me in advance like they did with Fantasia. Yeah. Which might just be a product of Fantasia being so experimental for what it was. Yeah, and and also you saw Fantasia for the first time when you were, what, seven? I was, yeah, I was primary school age. Yeah, and even then it would have felt insulting. <laughs> I We just fast-forwarded through the, <laughs> the narrator bits. I don't need to listen to this, dude. And I certainly didn't need to be told how to feel about any of those segments. I... Knew exactly what I was getting from them because I, you know, have functional eyes and ears and 
a brain that can process information. Now, I want you to consider in this conversation about Blue Bayou, we've spent a minute talking about Fantasia. Oh, yeah, right. There was a song here, wasn't there? All right. <laughs> it's fine. Next up, we have all the cats. All the cats join in. Yeah. So, um, um, mm. this is, this is definitely a for the love of animation kind of segment. Yep. Which is about cool teens enjoying some fun times at the local malt shop. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and just, boy howdy is this segment a lot of white people dancing to very not white music. <laughs> yeah, like, I, I don't want to, uh, <sighs> this is awkward. Because the thing is, you kind of have to talk about the weirdness there because there's not a lot of anything else to talk about. Like, I can point out that the little sister at home looked like Richie Rich in drag, but that's it. That's a couple <laughs> of seconds worth of content. Otherwise, you just kind of have to look at this and go, yeah, this is this is a, a bunch of jazz music being employed by a business that probably made black people enter through the back door. Yeah. I mean, well, this is 47. I... I don't know my dates on when Americans got their political shit together for any major milestone. As of 2021, not yet. Acknowledged. But, I mean, we're still in the era of segregation when this film was made, right? Yes. Yes. So basically, these are all white people because you couldn't mix them up without making an overt statement. Yeah. Well, you gotta remember, Fantasia was only a few years prior, and that's where we had zebra centaurs. (laughs) Yeah, so this, I mean, this segment is mostly cute for what it is but it's so you can't watch this without going like hang on where this is just a bunch of white teenagers doing black teenager stuff and i think that's an interesting example of how a media landscape can move because to us seeing a bunch of white americans gathering in one location and dancing and there being literally nothing but white people would actually stand out to us admittedly people who only consume american media we don't live there but we would go that's a little weird, isn't it? Why aren't there any not-white people? And of course, at this point, there is a reason there's no we- there's no non-white people there, because, you know, sundown towns and all that stuff. Um, I don't think we mentioned at the beginning of this that it's a jazz piece, did we? No. Okay, yeah. This is this is Benny Goodman and his band going all out on, on some swinging jazz music that makes all the cats join in. Yeah, look, I, I don't want to get into the paper bag politics of that particular band. I know that Benny Goodman was Jewish, so... Odds are super good that he also had to go in through the back entrance. Well, once <laughs> but, again, this is 1947, so I ain't gonna say shit to him. Yeah, yeah, he, he, uh, yeah, he's a Jewish performer in 1947. He can do what he wants. Um, but in the context of, like, but the thing is, like, once you, once you set aside that particular political point, what is there to talk about here aside from, I don't know, the way they fat shamed a cartoon? I was gonna say, I have something to talk about. Ass shaming. There, uh, there's a brief. This uh, piece does some of those old-fashioned cartoon gags of uh, characters interacting with their own creation. So they will come to life as the animator draws them and maybe react to the pencil. uh, Honestly, it's really quite cool. It is really cool. So I guess then, if we're going to leave the the question of segregation aside, we should move on to fat-shaming cartoons? Yep! So there's a... A bit in this where, of course, all the cool teenagers are pairing up with other cool teenagers strictly of the opposite gender. And uh, at this point, a lonely boy is consoled by the animator, adding in a girl for him to dance with. Who, by the way, at this act of cosmic creation, this spontaneous instigation of a life in front of him, 
apparently fully formed and fledged with thoughts and dreams and ideas and wants and a desire to be his friend and companion, he is unsatisfied. Well, she does have a big old ass. <laughs> though, though also, um, this section had a mild censoring in the VHS release where, I kid you not, the section earlier on where the girl is drying off after the shower, yeah. it is described as making her rear less vulgar. Yeah, I was looking for that because I heard about it and I'm not sure what they changed. I think perhaps we might have had some ass cheek peeking out from behind the towel. I'm not sure. Or maybe like the crack showed up on the actual fabric. It doesn't matter. Yeah, I'm not sure. It's it it's so tame as to be in unnoticeable. If you told me that I watched the censored or uncensored version, I couldn't fucking tell you. Well, I have seen the original cut of this. Uh the first time that I watched it. Which I know for reasons that we'll get to at the end of this segment. Yep, yep. Uh, but I could not tell you what the difference was. I noticed nothing. Uh, the, the girl with the big ass, because we're not done talking about her, because she then becomes disappointed with her buddy based on the opinions of this man she was created for, and so she scolds the animator until he erases the better part of her buttock and gives her a new contour line. Mm-hmm. It, well. <sighs> what you gonna, like, what, what did we possibly expect? Of course, that like I guess the thing is, I'm surprised they went out of their way to sh- to fat shame her. Like that seems the sort of thing that's almost too sexual for them to have brought up. But no, this is a really wild period of Disney. This whole segment is more sexual than Disney normally. Well, more sexual than Disney would be for some time afterwards. I'm going to say that certainly more sensual. There's a lot of indulgence and experience. Yeah, and you can see where they're going with a lot of it. Like they are enjoying playing with the shapes and the colors, and they do a lot of. Like humans turning into abstract shapes as they dance. And that's cute. And this is not the only uh, animator draws something to interact with the story as it's in progress gag that they do in this bit. Yeah. Just that none of the other ones involve, well, girls needing to be skinny. Yep. It's a real fucking shame. A tragic jukebox explosion killed dozens of local teenagers today at the malt shop. It's said that all the cats flew apart. Next up, we have Cindy Russell without you. And that is literally the entirety of my notes. This is another one that was pretty um, uh, unremarkable from an engagement standpoint, let's say. This this was the closest to being like a pure animation exercise in this one. Not quite abstract, but it's a lot of, you know, metaphorical imagery and, uh, you know, trees crying, stars dimming, and and just a, a very soporific song about not having someone around that you would like to be around. And it is sad. And you are sad. And the world is sad. Oh, yes, yes. I remember when this now. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> you couldn't even remember it, could you? <laughs> no, and it's... I watched this less than 24 hours ago and it has gone. <laughs> Aside from being, like, broadly appealing visuals, uh, it's it's uh, pretty unremarkable. Mm-hmm. So, then, next up... Oh, man, suddenly it got hokey. Yeah, next up we have Casey at the Bat. <laughs> Uh, yeah. I mean, even if I like the rest of this movie, this wouldn't be the segment to ask me about, because I just, I hate baseball. (laughs) I'm sorry, USA! I hate your national sport! It's boring and ugly. Alright, sorry, I'm done. No, 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 it's... Like, I don't know what an unugly sport looks like. Like, sport tends to all look very similar at the moment. Oh, it's the uniforms in baseball. Oh. They're so, like fitted and belted in the wrong places and just showing off asses in entirely the wrong way on people whose asses aren't really designed for showing off and it's just not attractive 
<laughs> Sorry, it's not you, it's me. Casey at the bat. Oh, I do hate Casey. Oh, <laughs> in Casey's case, it's him. Casey could, Casey sucks ass in this. So, ah, okay, how to talk about this without making just the whole podcast about this? Because this is the most interesting thing <laughs> in the whole movie to me. Ah. Uh, well, as a game scholar, because, um, okay, so for anyone who's used to partaking of my general body of work, Gina Bloom's gaming the stage. There's the sound. Take your shot. I know how this goes. <laughs> um, describes different ways that games are used in media. And there's a whole list of different ideas in that book for how well does the game get used in this piece of media. And Casey at the Bat fails a bunch of that list. Oh. Uh, Gina Bloom um, provides a basic list of ways that games could be used in um, in media. Um, and she was primarily looking at pre-modern, so pre-Shakespeare, theatre. So there were, and there were numerous plays that were written at that point in time, which either you, which used games in a whole bunch of different interesting ways. One of them being that the players would play the game in question and they, and the cues in the game as it played would tell them what to do for the next stage of the, the game. But it was, that meant that they would actually have performed and tested three or four endings to the story based on how the game went. Like this Oh, is- the players would actually play the game. Yeah. Oh, I thought you meant like diegetically, uh. Well, that's the other thing. Diegetic- would perform the playing of the game rather than would play the game as part of the performance. Yeah, and that's one way. Another one is that when it, whenever a game of cards was used, because like memorizing an entire play is hard, scripts are hard, you would often have it so that before the game, before the play was started, there would be someone whose job it was is to stack the deck and make sure that the play played out properly so that the players didn't have to memorize the gameplay. They just had to know how the games <laughs> got played and have the general beats. And that was actually a really interesting thing of like different things games can do in stories. Um, and Casey the Bat is entirely about a game. So there's some stuff around it that you can kind of discard. The list is that relevant rules of the game are communicated meaningly for an audience that does not know them. I don't think that happens here. Considering that several times I had to ask you what was going on in the game? Yeah. Yes. This is definitely written for someone who already knows how baseball works. Irrelevant rules of the game are followed anyway, meaning the game is being meaningfully played? No. If we extract the rule breakages just for comedy effect, <laughs> does it get a pass? No, not even. Okay. Like, you know, the fact the fact that the, they, like, actually harass and, and attack one another, that shows that they're not following even the irrelevant rules to the plot. Okay, yep, yep. Um, this is a very, uh, like, a, a wacky, silly cartoon animation segment mm-hmm. uh, set to a pre-existing poem. Yeah, and uh, it's just the, for context. And it's the pre-existing poem that I have a lot of feelings for. So this isn't just this segment to me. This is seeing someone take this poem <laughs> and show me their interpretation of it. And spoilers, me being angry at them. <laughs> because part of the point of the poem is that there is a point of ambiguity. There Aww. is an uncertainty about it. And Disney takes that uncertainty and makes it actually a thing and like clarifies no this is what happened and it sucks this is like me whenever someone says they should make a live action zelda movie yes or any zelda movie (laughs) uh ordinary game actions are executed by players in ways that express who those characters are Mm. yeah that's probably the only one that it gets fair points on like every i feel like the whole reason they wanted to do this was to you know do wacky shit for each character that it was Let's say inspired by the poem. Yeah. Um, if you arrive midway, the game state is meaningful and, expli- and explicit. 
technically, yeah. Like, it did make it clear to you that the bases were loaded and that they could win if Casey just gets a home run. Yep, yep. Poem makes that very clear. Yep. Uh, the game is not distorted beyond capacity for the narrative. Uh, well, there's a lot of goofy cartoon shit going on here. Yeah, but when when you take that as acceptable breaks from reality, then yeah, actually, this does actually follow the rules. Like, you get a number of basemen, there's no teleporting people. Okay, okay. Like, that, that works, more or less. Uh, the game is winnable or losable, in this case, because it's Evidently, baseball. Yeah. yeah. And, and baseball, by the way. Baseball is one of these games where using baseball for metaphors is hackish at this point. Like, we use the phrase, hit a home run, to describe someone who did a really good job all on their own in completely non-baseball contexts. I'm frankly offended by the number of baseball metaphors uh, I hear here in this country. Yeah, exactly. Where, okay, some people play baseball, but I don't think it's even televised. We're apparently really good at it, but... Well, that's because we sent cricketers. Um, the game's purpose as an equal playing field is used to compare characters to one another. Yes, that does happen. Casey, uh, the, the the pitcher's reaction to Casey versus pitcher's reaction to the other players. That pitcher is completely confident that they can strike out those two other players who they then fail to strike out. And Casey is the one who he's scared of. So it shows you that contrast. Also, those two are the heroes of the fucking story. <laughs> I will, uh, on that point, actually, I will point out... Um, that I really enjoyed the animation of the the good team uh, interacting effortlessly with mm. one another and with the ball. There's some really good, just uh, yeah, you know, careless pass over the shoulder, catch without looking, kind of you know, stupid bullshit. But good, good quality, stupid cartoon bullshit. Yeah, and and that makes the animation errors stand out as well. Like there's points where gloves <laughs> jump hands. Um, there's a point where a glove jumps hand. Like you, you sh- he shows you. The character catching the glo- hand, catching the ball in glove, and it's the whole of the shot, and then it does a jump back shot to the same shot of the same character in the same position, but his glove's on the opposite hand, and now he's holding the ball in an empty hand. Yeah, I guess they'd only have one glove, wouldn't they? Yep. I don't do baseball. Have I made this clear? It's okay. Uh, and finally, the game's purpose as a cultural element is used to show the importance of the play and not just obscure rule points. Well, so, that's fair. So, the, so this example <laughs> is stuff like, um, we lost a duel at the start of our science fiction episode, and now one of us has to marry the queen because of the rules of the game, right? That instance is not showing you the game, that that is the important thing is getting you to that rules point of someone has to marry the queen. Whereas this is, no, this is about This baseball. whole story is about the winning or losing of this game. Yeah. And in the poem, you can read it in different ways depending on how you emphasize it. Is Casey showing off? Is Casey overcompensating did casey fuck up or was casey actually legit struck out is this a song about missing success because you missed success or is this a song about wow fuck casey (laughs) and those are all equally valid readings of the poem which i find interesting on the other hand it's definitely a short about wow fuck casey yeah casey sucks (laughs) This, uh, he's very unambiguously showing off the entire way through, fucks up at the last second, loses everything. Oh well. Yeah, and, and like, the, the, the extra visual information about, you know, showing Casey treat people badly as well. Oh yeah, he's a douchebag. Like, fuck Casey. Yeah. This guy is clearly descended from Gaston. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I buy that. In fact, I, I believe. Okay, I have a theory that he may be the template for Gaston in more ways than one, which I will talk about at the very end after we deal with the Forbidden Shot. 
The other thing I will note is this rendition of this poem. I do. It's been a long time since I've read Casey the Bat, and I used to be able to quote sections of it from memory. Uh, I can't do that anymore, not by a long shot. But I do not remember the phrasing that women don't even understand what baseball is, but they want to watch Casey. I I think the version I read might have cut that. <laughs> Because it's such a douchey fucking passage. It's a real asshole drop, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know I spent the segment making fun of how I didn't know anything about baseball, but that's a choice, goddammit. Yeah. And women- Oh, Casey is an uggo, yeah. And and women have always, as long as there's been baseball, there have been women who are into baseball. Oh, yeah. Every single game that we shittily gatekeep women away from, they have always been some of them who are interested, no matter how hostile we make it for them. Anyway. So it probably is, like, thinking back on it, it probably is there. It's an old poem, but (laughs) I don't remember it. And it makes me, it makes me think this poem might be worse than I remember. And I really fear when this video goes up, Jeb's going to contact me and be like, I'm real sorry to tell you this, but. (laughs) (laughs) All right, that's 20 minutes on Casey at the bat. (laughs) Well, that's the most we're going to, well, actually we might talk a little bit about the last one, but Okay. Well, uh, I think we've dragged Casey for all he's worth. Uh, what's up next? Two silhouettes. Oh, right. This feels like something someone came up with as a way to save money on animation and then found that the thing they were doing <laughs> to save money was just as tedious. Uh, it's another one of those ones that must have been impressive at the time for blending live action and uh, and cell animation. But, I mean, it's if you don't have that, if you if you're not impressed by that... If that's not doing it for you, then this is a pretty mediocre ballet dance. It it interests me in hindsight, because of course nowadays, look, if you're into the performing arts at all, if you're into opera or theater or ballet or any of this stuff, we're just better at it now. Like, you know, we can talk about, oh, the greats of old history. No, we're just better. We have bigger areas. We can do more acrobatic stuff. The people can play the music better. It's just a consistent thing that because we've had a hundred years with all of these forms, like in general, humans are now better at theater back then. We can also just film it in a much more interesting way. And that's the thing. A ballet dancer tippy tippy toeing around in a circle doesn't look very impressive, particularly in silhouette. Yeah. So you might take that from a particularly nice angle to emphasize the elegance of the pose or something like that and the fact that this was like this is almost certainly being done as an amazing technical exercise of look we can block out a background and we can do our whole animation thing because that's the thing that they love doing but that particular thing they were doing there was probably very technically impressive to do but put restraints on the kinds of ballet they could do yeah i don't doubt that because i don't like, I'm going to use the words wrong, I'm sure, but, you know, arabesques and plies and lifts and all that <laughs> other stuff. That's been in theatre for- that's been in ballet forever. I mean, it's the foundational material of ballet, yes. Yeah, and yet they didn't really do any of that stuff. All the stuff that you think of as impressive ballet isn't in here. Uh, there's a little of it here and there, but, like, broadly speaking, not what I would- I'm not an expert in ballet. I do not assume this particularly impressive ballet, and- I suspect even in the 40s, this was not particularly impressive ballet. No. I don't know. Maybe someone who is a ballet enthusiast can tell me better than that, but it it sure didn't impress me. Mm Mm-hmm. They still have sappy love songs in this. Yeah, I don't know. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, well. Let's move on to something completely different. Peter and the Wolf. Peter and the Wolf. Oh, boy. This is burned into my brain. (laughs) 
I I think they separated this one out for the TV uh, TV installations. I think my grandmother had a vinyl of it, like just the audio, none of the visuals. Oh, but the Disney version? Yeah. Okay. Um, so with the narration. Yeah. Ah. By Winnie the Pooh. Yeah, that yeah, Winnie the Pooh narrating Peter and the Wolf will stick in your brain a bit. Something Stillwell, I think it is. Uh, no, we talked about him previously, isn't it? Sterling Holloway. Yes, uh, yeah. Sterling Holloway, I think. We've looked him back up previously. Friend of the podcast. Friend, friend of the podcast, Sterling Holloway. <laughs> um, <laughs> assuming I'm remembering the right guy, anyway. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll give it this. This would have been a great like crib notes version of this for kids trying to engage. With this as a piece of music, uh, like we studied this in school, and this is pretty much the exact same information as you, you know, you share to get kids talking about it, and you know, proactively listen to the music and and try and note what's going on at what points. Yep. We didn't have the narrated version when we studied it in school. I yeah, would add. we use the Disney version <laughs> for school as well in primary school. So, like the cult approved of Peter and the Wolf. <laughs> well, it was probably old enough in the Disney canon that it was acceptable. No. Oh, yes. It's uh. I was going to say, plus it's like a real, you know, on-the-nose morality tale once again, but it's not really, is it? It's a weird story. It's very odd. It just seems to be do what you want anyway and it'll work out fine. The The thing with this this story is that there's like a whole bunch of different, you know, you remember those value books where it was like a little kid's storybook and at the end there'd be a moral all summarized for you in like one paragraph? Yes. I feel like I've read three different Peter and the Wolf morality books. <laughs> and they all have a different answer. I've never seen it summarized trying to package the moral for you at the end. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just, well, my understanding of it is that it's an older folk tale than the, the musical score. Yeah, that wouldn't it. surprise me. And therefore, I suspect it's probably just that it's old enough that it doesn't necessarily have a moral. It's just one of those stories where a bunch of shit happens. Yeah. But that hasn't stopped Disney from imposing that in the past. Oh, heck no. Um, I do have a couple of notes here. Yeah, please go ahead. Uh, first up, um, the narrator says, as you know, when beginning the plot, and that drove me nuts <laughs> as a kid, because I, honest to goodness, didn't know that, and my reaction was, oh, oh no, where was I supposed to have known this? This thing gave me anxiety. I didn't do the readings, I'm sorry. And I wound up rewatching this, like, <laughs> at night, when all my parents had gone to bed, like, rewatching Peter and the Wolf in the dark, like... When was I supposed to have learned this? Oh no! I made fun of that in my notes too, just because starting with "How you know" is such a hack move. A hack move. Maybe it wasn't back now, but yeah, that's, uh... they they had invented good writing in 1947. <laughs> you know, have they invented good writing in children's movies? <sighs> Probably not. Well, consider teenagers <laughs> hadn't yet been fully invented. I I think you missed all the cats join in, Talon. <laughs> <laughs> they were invented right before our eyes. <laughs> Summoned into space by an uncaring ass god. <laughs> and shaved down. Yep. Uh, ba, 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 ba. Uh, I really enjoyed the the instrument introductions where they animated the uh, sound. Well, instrument, then into sound, then sound forming into the, the shape of the creature. Yeah. That represent that was just a nice bit of animation. Yeah, that that that's that Fantasia stuff. That's yeah. that's that's the good stuff. I enjoyed that. Then it turned into just extremely boring mm-hmm. this period of Disney. Uh but then it turns into just, you know, extremely boring uh vintage Disney fucking Preston Blair ass looking character design. Yeah. Um I have I have other problems with this, but they're much more like problems of the story. Uh so for example, uh it shows you the duck going to heaven. And then it tries to be like, oh no, the duck's not dead. 
Fuck you. It does. This movie lied to us. Yeah. That's that's a fucking cop-out even bigger than the cop-out of the original version I heard, which is, you know, the old fairy tale thing of they cut the wolf open and the duck's fine inside. See, that I don't mind because that's got some viscera to it. Like, that, that has a coherent sense-making of, of a fairy tale of, like, maybe it's not too late. Oh, maybe I can fix it. I don't mind that. I mind <laughs> deeply that they showed us the, the duck going to heaven and they wanted us to mourn the duck and they use the music cues to make it clear the duck is dead, and then it turns out, no, the duck's not dead. Fuck you. It's very boring. Mm-hmm. It's just that, oh, no, fine after all, I guess. Oh, whatever. Um, I dislike a lot of the wolf animation. Yeah. Because, like, these characters were almost bullying the wolf for a lot of it, and that's a weird choice when this is supposed to be your terrifying predator that everyone is in the right for wanting to proactively hunt and kill. Yeah, it does, and it doesn't look like a wolf. Oh, they never look like wolves. Wolves are like weird, stringy, long-nosed weasels in old cartoons. It's really annoying. It looks like a haunted marionette of a wolf. It does, yes. Uh, it describes the cat and the bird as fighting, <laughs> which is not fucking true. <laughs> oh, right. If we're, We'll never get anywhere if we're going to bicker amongst ourselves. Like, no, that cat is trying to eat that bird. The bird is not trying to do anything to the cat. Fuck you for your false equivalency. Some, Fuck you. That's a real both sidesism movie. I I find a whole history of school incidences of <laughs> oh well you were both fighting oh. no he was holding me down and stepping on my head it wasn't both of us yeah okay. Fuck you. This would be a particular note to you, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um. And that's about all the notes I had. Uh huh. Well, I have one other more, which is this goes back to the great Disney storytelling well of I can't tell you how he did it because. How the fuck did Peter beat the wolf? Yeah, they really don't, huh? No, no explanation. Just, I mean, I guess we see him swinging up into the tree. Mm-hmm. But then it's just fine. Yep. So in the original, the hunters come and chase away the wolf, right? I have to assume in the original, the hunters come and shoot the wolf. Yeah. Because it's Russian. Yeah. Like, that's my memory of it. The little boy does a stupid thing because he's a stupid little boy. Um, and, you know, they would all have been eaten if a bunch of hunters hadn't shown up, killed the wolf, and the duck miraculously was okay. Yeah, so this is your lesson. I think the wolf actually ate more of them in the original as well. It sounds like the kind of story where, like, they're setting up a whole bunch of different pins to get knocked down. I did, Yeah, that was a weird choice. They even have the narrator say, well, that's one down. Yeah. Like, well, okay, when's number two? Now you've, now you've got me expecting something. Come on, eat the bird. Yep. Um. That was weird. That yeah. Was really weird. And, and this is not to say that there's anything wrong with Peter and the Wolf, the original thing, because I just don't know it. <laughs> like, you would think, with all of this, like, going back in my own history, I would have gone back and gone, well, what's Peter and the Wolf really like? But I don't care. Disney made it seem kind of boring. <laughs> uh, I think it's more interesting as a piece of music than as a story, and also that might be the point. Uh, next up, we have a love story. Right. Sorry. For some reason, I haven't written the, se- the title of the next segment. Uh-huh. <laughs> But this is the one with a bunch of uh, instruments, right? Dancing around doing oh, stuff? Oh, yeah. Uh, they, yeah. No, no. There's another one in between. My notes are missing this one as well. There's a whole bunch of instruments dancing around oh. and there's like a a, a, a dog <laughs> piano. It's, yes, I was hoping you caught the name of it because nope. I apparently failed to, to get the name of it. Oh, well. And I did indeed, like, I have two notes on this one. Is that I like the piano horse. Yeah. Uh, and the first one is right at the beginning where it's just naked finger legs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I didn't like the naked finger legs. Yeah, I find this particular kind of like music scape really upsetting. Like, 
the thing that Warner Brothers and Disney both liked doing were these entirely abstract backgrounds, but then they showed, like, gravity and things that were recognizable <laughs> moving around them, which created the idea of, like, these vast, yawning dreamscapes of no material, but, like, if you fall off the piano, you might die. Yeah, this is very dreamscapey. And, like, I had nightmares about that stuff. Oh. <laughs> like, this stuff genuinely terrified me Poor as a child. Talent. Whimsical cartoon instruments swallowing one another and turning each other into tiny little bugs. And Yep. Look, yep, they were having fun with the animation. I shouldn't have been here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess your damage is not their fault. No. But it's, a, it's, it's another one that I'm just putting down to the illustrious score of it's fine. Yeah. At, 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 at its peak, this movie manages, it's all right. It's fine. <laughs> Next up, we do have a love story. Yeah, now we have a love story. Uh huh. It's the full title of this Johnny Fedora and yeah. Alice Blue Bonnet. Yeah, that's right, the okay. full title. <laughs> yep. Um, honestly, this wasn't as bad as I expected it to be. I'll give it that. Disney made a classic mistake here, which is they gave us a monetary value for something. Oh, right. Yeah. The song, like, specifies how much the bonnet is sold for. Uh huh. I have to say, it did make me go, whew, that seems pricey for back now. Yeah. Well. Um, just, just for comparison, uh, the how the hat was like 25 bucks and that would be four of those hats is a hundred bucks, which is to say 40 of those hats is a brand new sports car. Back then? Back then. Right. And I mean, top of the line, fancy, you know, the sports <laughs> car, brand new. People were kind of, well, Americans in particular were kind of obsessed with hats. Yep. But I could also go to the Department of Treasury and look for inflation rates and calculate that over time. That's a better choice. Yeah. So as it turns out, if you want an example of what this hat is worth today, it's $370 US <laughs> or in Australian money, about 680 bucks. That's a very expensive hat. That's... I mean, that's not out of, of uh, it's not unfeasible at all. Yeah. Like, a, a fashionable brand name hat could easily cost you that much. Yeah, but, um, that's a rent check and more. <laughs> oh, that's, that's a- worth selling to people who paid rent? Silly time. <laughs> yeah, good point. Uh, I also have the note that all cop hats are bastards. <laughs> yeah, why was that cop hat such a jerk? Achab. <laughs> uh, I actually really like the, the fedora's design. I hate saying I liked Johnny Fedora. Because that just sounds like I'm talking about the worst kind of internet fuck. <laughs> but I the the use of the entire hat hole as a mouth actually gives him a pretty endearing face. Yeah, yeah. And the angle of the, the pinch at the front affecting his eyes. He's a pretty cute hat. I probably would have smooched him too. Little known law, he's Cappy's granddad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, grandpappy fedora. <laughs> Wait, why did I say that in a grandpappy voice? <laughs> Whatever. It's a flash forward. Anyway. This movie's rotted my brain. Uh, also, the the happy ending of, like, he gets to be the, uh, he gets to be the sun hat of a pair of horses. That was weird. Delivering ice. <laughs> so, he gets to be the sun hat for a piece of redundant transport that's going to be phased out in the next ten years. Oh. For a service that's going to be phased out in the next ten years. Like, he is doubly redundant already. I mean, he's a hat. He's not going to last that long anyway. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what a $600 hat lasts for. <laughs> I mean, you don't usually pay for uh, longevity <laughs> when it comes to... Well, I don't know. Some people would disagree, I guess. Let's say it depends on the brand and the item of clothing. Sometimes you're paying for longevity. Mm-hmm. A lot of the time, you're not. 
A lot of the time, you're not. This is definitely a don't ask me how he did it, but somehow. <laughs> they really just. I thought there was gonna be, like. <sighs> I mean, he got himself blown off the guy's head to, like, run over to the lady who was wearing the bonnet, and I thought this was gonna be, like, a 101 Dalmatians thing, where the hats got the humans together so they could spend their lives together, and it was all gonna be cute, but ultimately, you know, follow a line of reasoning, as opposed to just. Things sucked until, by chance, they didn't. I mean this as nicely as possible, but based on everything I've seen at this point, I don't think Walt Disney was very good at stories. (laughs) Literally none of these movies up until now have had a consistent, coherent, follow-through, three-act structure. They have all been messes. Well, I mean, he did keep making movies out of other people's stories, and that might be why. Pinocchio, structurally a mess. Snow White, (laughs) structurally a mess. And he is still alive at this point. Bambi, not too bad as far as structure goes. There's not a lot of story there, but it does have a clear, like, act one, act two, act three. Alright, I'll give you that. It's got a three-act structure. It's just bad in all the other ways. (laughs) Well, no, also it looks lovely. Sure, but the story is <laughs> well, the bad. the story is bad in all the other ways. Okay, yep, granted. Basi- right, it's fine. Basically, I think that as a culture, we venerate Walt Disney for shit he's bad at, which is amazing. Yeah, I mean, I still think Dumbo is probably the best story that we've seen so far, and it's literally missing its third act. Yeah, its third act is like 20 seconds long. It no, it doesn't have a third act. It's just it's the spinning of the newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, everything was great after that. Yep, denouement. Bam! <laughs> <Dead> motherfucker! <laughs> yeah, um, that said, uh, I think we come up to the best bit of this one, which isn't even all that good, but it has some charm. It does have some charm. Which is, uh, Opera Pathétique. Uh, the whale who wanted to sing at the Met. Yeah, which, th- there are a lot of questions that ask- that asks, and they're never gonna get answered. Well, like, where does this whale live that the Met is specifically what he gives a fuck about uh-huh. as an opera singer? Like, I'm sure, yes, I'm sure you had very nice culture, America, but you wouldn't have been people's first port of call for opera, all right? You could just fucking own that. Yeah, well, I mean, to Americans, they definitely were the best at it. And, like, who else did the Americans care about? Certainly in 1947. It's not like the the Italian opera houses are exactly in full swing at that point. (laughs) They may have to be cutting down some dictators around about that point. It's got dark. Yeah. Well, that's fitting, because this story is pretty fucking dark. It is it is kind of amazing that this story manages to balance, like, almost like an acrobat on a, on a single point, where it shows you a giant chunk of stuff that's literally just an imagined spot of stuff that definitely doesn't happen. <laughs> it's, I mean, I, I think a lot of Disney does that at this point, actually. Like, we've had a few that have extended fantasy sequences. It in was them. all a dream. I mean, sometimes it's just an excuse to animate pink elephants. Uh, shall we do a, a quick summary of this one, since it does actually have an internal story? After you. Uh, there, there are rumors of a spectacular singing voice uh, being heard at sea. Uh, a rich butthole decides... That the reason a whale can sing must be because the whale swallowed an opera singer and goes to find this whale. A bird who is a friend of the whale leads him to the whale because, you know, the whale wants to be discovered as a talent. Um, and, and they kill him to try and get the opera singer out. Da-da-da-da-da-da. Kids. <laughs> yep, that's your plot. It's, um, well, it's interesting. It's got the most coherent moral 
out of, well, I mean, compared to a lot of the Disney stuff we've seen so far, this has a coherent moral, which seems to be capitalists ruin everything. Yeah. I I would like to add on the dash of capitalism that it notes that heaven is sold out. Oh, yeah, that was gross, huh? Which implies that you need a ticket to heaven. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> well, only when they've got a show on, you know? Oh, oh otherwise, what, what do they do? Turf you out to wait in front of St. Peter? Like, <laughs> what do you think Purgatory's for, Talon? <laughs> I'm reasonably certain Catholics would argue with you. It's literally just the private bathroom outside of the Heaven Theatre. Yep. For starters, the narrator in this is unforgivable. They start this off as a... What's the style of music called where you sing everything? Recitative. Right, in that. Uh, with the, the opera singer performer who is the voice of the whale and like everyone else who gets a voice until this fucking narrator pops up out of nowhere... After our premise has been established. Yeah. To explain everything that happens from then on, which is... It's maddeningly (laughs) unnecessary. Why is he here? Which is especially maddening when you see how much of this they do without words or dialogue at all. Right. Because he's there for like three minutes to explain to us that this is the whale and he can sing and his name is Willie. And of that, Willie is the only thing we didn't know yet. By the way, another one, of, another one of my notes is why the fuck are all the whales called Willy? I hate that. Yeah. Hmm. People need to be just a tiny bit imaginative in naming whales. Call him Chona, that'd be great. <laughs> Blasphemy. Blasphemy. But, yeah, I... the the Look, remember how I said about narrators might just be, like, ill-suited? Yeah. I think specifically this here is an example of a big fuck-up with a narrator. Like, this narrator, as presented, is actually doing something wrong. Don't introduce the narrator a third of the way in. Yeah. And right before you have an extended fantasy sequence, which has no dialogue. It's just clips of the the possibility in the timeline where this whale didn't get fucking harpooned. And, you know, went on to sing all the classic operas, so it's a bunch of comedy scenes... With a fucking whale in opera costumes and stuff. It's great. Fucking whale Mephistopheles is brilliant. What? Yeah. N- no lies. The the whales are pretty fun. Like it's the different so whale costumes are pretty fun. Anyway, so you, you go from the intro. Then you have the narrator pissing about for a few minutes. Then you have this long sequence. And then you have the ending where the narrator pops back up again. And there's nothing in this that wouldn't be blindingly obvious without his influence. It's so frustrating. Yeah. And, okay, you would need to explain how he has three voices at three registers. But also, you could just not explain that and just let the visuals do the work. And children would be like, oh, that's weird. I don't quite get it, but whatever. Yeah, I I guess your, uh, your uvula is what determines the pitch of your voice, I suppose. Yeah. That, I mean, it's not right, but it's... Wait, It's not wait, hard to wait. understand. Wait, 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 wait. What? Are you telling me that the singing whale story took license with biology? Well, only with the uvula. <laughs> Everything else here is factually correct. <laughs> Everything else, yes. Okay. I, uh, you know, the, the woman singing uh, Tristan and his salt with him is uh, a fucking champion for the ages. <laughs> uh... But yeah, it's I, I don't even think you would have had to explain that because you it's something you don't question if you see it that like they clearly show you, oh, we activate this uvula to bring in the second voice and this uvula to bring in the third voice. 
It's nonsense, but it's clear nonsense. Yeah. It doesn't need explaining. Maybe people were just dumb in the 40s. Well, well... I mean, I know there's a certain element of all this cinematic language was less established and people did, in fact, need more explaining done, but I don't feel this needed explaining. I will give those excuses to stuff like Snow White, but they have been making movies for a while now. It's true. This is, uh, what? Not quite ten years after Snow White? Something like that. I can't remember the exact year of Snow White, which I guess is my failing. I remember this is 1947. The animation quality here, by the way, is already looking really nice for 1947. I will save that for the film overall. It, it's pretty lovely. Yeah, Snow White was 1937. This is literally it is ten, 10 years, years later. Hey! Yep. I'm the smartest man alive! <laughs> I shouldn't impersonate better podcasts on our podcast. No, a different podcast on our podcast. Yeah, it's also better. Anyway, but thank God the narrator showed up at the last minute to, to tell us, don't worry, because the whale was sent by God and now he has returned to God. The whale is a white Christian Protestant, <laughs> don't worry. It went to heaven. And you, friend, who tried to help your other friend realize his impossible dream, and in doing so, directly led to his murder, don't feel too bad. Because I said so. That's it. That's all we got. That's all we've got. That's all, folks. Fucking narrative. Yeah, no, terrible, terrible morality, terrible narrative, fun whale in funny costumes. And, uh, and that's the fucking end of the movie. That's what they thought they'd go out on. Bye, kids. Have a good night. Sleep well. The whale's dead. The whale's dead, kids. (laughs) Funny whale's dead. (laughs) But don't worry, it gets worse. It does get worse. B-b-b-bonus segment. So... I had seen this once before. I assume this is the first time you've seen the film in its entirety. Yeah, I feel like I've seen it all stripped away in bits. And after watching it, I thought to myself, huh, I guess the most dire segments I remember from these piecemeal compilation movies don't come up until Melody Time, which is our next movie. Because I remembered something quite specific that didn't show up in this film. Turns out, no, it was just so bad that they took it out of the DVD release. And later versions, because this film actually opens with the Martins and the Coys. <laughs> oh boy! So, uh, what what do you think is really deserving of uh, Disney's legacy as the artistic industry standard for animated feature films? Because if you said five minutes of hillbillies murdering one another uh. and uh, thirty seconds of domestic violence on the end, then oh. Have we got a segment for you? Yeah. This, uh, this one gets a little bit trigger warning, to be honest. So yeah. if you're not comfortable, I would skip the next sort of... Yeah, we're going to recommend at this point that you skip ahead to 58 minute mark. Just some real world input. Uh, the the Martins and the Coys is a, a riff on a real thing that happened, which was the Hatfield-McCoy feud in West Virginia, uh, which took I think it was 30 years and led to a lot of people dying. This was like a real two rival families shooting each other gang war in rural Virginia because there was no government. So families were governments. <laughs> Correct. Yeah, that sounds about right. Uh, the the uh, story such as it is of this segment is that two families live on opposite hills and they hate each other so much that uh, one day somebody steps out of line and they just fucking murder each other. Uh-huh. Down they to the last two. Just shotgun each other until there's only two left, and one of them is inexplicably a young girl. So instead of murdering each other, the last two get married. 
and then live a long and happy life of beating the shit out of each other. Yeah, like, it. it is not subtle about it. This thing really directly in- like, at first, sometimes I was expecting to be like, oh, she hits him and that's meant to be funny, that sucks. But no, it's worse. It's she hits him and then we see him rolling up his sleeves yep. to run into the house to beat her up. They do- they stop short of actually showing him hitting her, but it- is made very clear by context that this is mutual. And also, that still wouldn't make it okay that she's hitting him and we're to find it funny. Like, yeah. The tone is very clear. This is hilarious. Ha ha. Ha ha. Ha ha. Uh, there's also a, an extremely sus shot when our, let's say, romantic leads first meet each other, uh, whereupon he spies her girly figure. Uh atop a hill with the sun behind her and we see her silhouetted through her skirt and ugh god this is some sleazy crap just um, real sleazy shit ah it's gross i mean don't get me wrong i i can see why he's impressed uh because she looks like she's from a different goddamn species and i suspect she might be since everyone else in both of these families is a withered old man so where the fuck did she come from anyway i look i it's fine to give your characters highly contrasted caricatures for their appearance, uh, but it's another thing entirely when all women are drawn in this particular conventionally attractive specific style. Yeah. And men can be a whole variety of hideous. Yeah, well, this this guy is built like Casey, so this guy is meant to be hot. You remember how I said I had a theory on Gaston? Yeah. Because <laughs> Gaston is, broadly speaking, a parody of older, supposedly handsome asshole dude archetypes. Uh, the, the whole thing about Beauty and the Beast is that he would have been the, the conventionally viewed as hero just based on his looks and his uh, aggressiveness. Uh, so yeah, the fact that he, this character looks almost identical to Casey, and they are both noted by their stories as being just so darn handsome that, that all Ugh. the ladies are just super into them. Ugh. So I, I think this is indeed their template for, well, this is what a dame would find hot, right? That's a good-looking fella right there. And they're just such incredibly ugly ape men. Yeah. Ugh. Yuck. Uh... Anyway, that's uh, you know, thanks for thanks for bringing me into my uh, my uh, Disney multiverse fan theory there, Talon. I've become one of them. Yeah. Okay. So everyone who jumped to this point, I'm really sorry for that shabby special effect. <laughs> um, but uh, good news, that movie's over. On to the next movie, where I'm sure we won't have to do another trigger warning. No, definitely not. <laughs> what kind of trigger warning could you possibly need for a feature called Fun and Fancy Free? Sounds great. Sounds great. Oh, it opens with Jiminy Cricket. This sucks. Oh, we hate this cricket. Oh, fuck this cricket. Also, also, in the credits, okay? No dick humor. Well, if there's no dick humor, we revolt. But they do have the presence of someone called Mortimer Snurd. Ooh. Yeah, okay, partial credit. Is one of a snow Mickey Mouse? Am I remembering that correctly? Don't know. I can't remember who's who out of it. We've got our Mickey, Donald, and Goofy uh, trifecta in a film for, I guess, the first time yeah. uh, in this one. Um, I do. <laughs> sorry, sorry. I shouldn't take the opportunity to bitch about those Disney characters. We're talking about Jiminy Cricket. Who sucks. Who in this film is declaring that he's a, a happy-go-lucky fella? Does that check out to you? I thought he was a moralizing piece of shit cop. Yeah. I thought he was an insect knock. Yeah. I, all right, all right. Happy-go-lucky fella, huh? You're just, 
you're jungle booking it out here. You're you're got the bare necessities. A dude who sings happily in 1947. I think you'll find trouble is just a bubble of air, <laughs> which is to say the whitest man in America. That's a real take that money, watch it burn kind of song. Blah. <laughs> My notes here repeatedly include just the phrase, Jiminy Cricket sucks. I may have screamed in my text, read the fucking room. (laughs) Uh, We get to see him hit on a doll and then tell the doll she needs to smile more. Fuck you, Jiminy Cricket. Additional doll note. Yeah. Did you notice the design of this doll? No. This doll was like a sexy can-can dancer, right? Uh, Why did she say mama uh, when you tipped her over? Why does she talk like a baby doll? Uh, I hate it. I hate it so much. Uh, mm. Why do we let Disney deal with children? Mm. They don't know what... No. no this I isn't, don't think Disney liked children very much. I wouldn't either if this was ha- if this was the vision of them. <laughs> I think he had like an idea. So Disney's... He was like super authoritarian. There's a repeating theme where he's continually coming up with like utopian visions of the future and all people have to do is just do everything the way he says Mm -hmm. like when he designed that fucking town that he tried to get be you know politically independent yeah you know or you can't vote i'm in charge of this town like oh my god and and i think he might have felt much the same way about children like i think he might have had the idea in his mind of this is how i'd construct a correct child and that that was the child he had in mind whenever he you know produced things for children as you may know by the way that he threw away the children who worked for him once they stopped being useful <laughs> or convenient like the one in this movie but we're not going to get into that because that is also dark shit so did you do some research on the human child who appears in this yeah oh boy they, they all got hosed. Like, all the child actors got completely hosed. I know that's the tradition now, and, yeah. and I guess I'm not surprised to find out that it was the tradition then. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, so... Bongo! Earlier we spoke about how this was not quite a, a musical package film. This is not a Fantasia at home. This is just a, we only had two half movies. So we're gonna slam them together as if they're even vaguely related to each other. And just call that a feature. We had two long seven-minute Warner Brothers-style movie uh, videos, and then we whomped them both up into half hours. It is very curious to me that they have the Jiminy Cricket in live-action space uh, to to bridge both of these unrelated stories, but the bridges are also unrelated, effectively. Yeah. Like, he just goes from one to the other, they're not... Yeah. It's not, it doesn't actually tie them together. It's not a framing device. Continue to build my theory that Walt Disney was actually really bad at stories, <laughs> but he was really good at bullying animators and breaking unions. He was good at those things. I don't know why people like this guy. I, I This experience of watching the Disney movies has radicalized me. Death to Disney. <laughs> I did have uh, one other note just before we jump into the story of Bongo, which is that the, the setup for playing the story of Bongo is, is Jiminy finding a record. Uh, with the doll that he be reply guys at. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, look at him trash that fucking record. Yeah. Look at you handle it by the edges and the sticker, you little fucker. <laughs> he, he walks on it. He's <laughs> a piece of shit. And he's a cricket, but also he's a cricket with great big shoes. He has shoes on. Look, I may be a 90s kid, but I remember records. My parents had records. And you tiptoed past the fucking record player. Yeah. Mm. I, um, <laughs> just Nothing happens to ever make me like Jiminy Cricket more. 
Yeah, J- Jiminy Cricket is a fundamentally hateable little shit. Anyway, Bongo! Bongo, Bongo, Bongo! Bongo is a story narrated by some lady who I'm sure had a very nice career and was a good person. But Jesus fucking Christ, I wish they'd stop doing narrators. Yep. I mean, they had to for this one because otherwise the story wouldn't make any fucking sense. Well, I mean... Because it involves a plot point that doesn't make any fucking sense. Yeah, okay, I guess so. Outside of that plot point, there's nothing of it that requires narration. Yeah. Like, we can very clearly see that this is a world-famous circus bear who can do lots of cool stuff, but he is sad and feels trapped. Mm -hmm. The narrator refers to him as the bear in the gilded cage, but that is wrong because he is treated badly, and that's just a cage. Yeah. Uh, so, with this, we get to talk about a fun phenomenon that you'll see in movies once you know about it, uh, which is every animal's a dog. <laughs> uh, this is one of my favorite tropes that I don't actually <laughs> like, but it's somehow endeared itself to me because it's so dumb. Yeah, it, it does really rely on you. Like once you once you become aware of it and you notice the way that it occurs in movies, you start to see it like an old friend, and it just is a little happy signal of all right, the people who made this are dipshits. <laughs> And, like, the, realistically speaking, there's more than one person who has been involved in a bear attack because they thought bear body language equates to dog body language. No! Nope. So, <laughs> do you want to explain every animal's a dog? Well, it's very simple. Most people have met a dog. Most people haven't extensively, at least, met a bear. And if they have, it was probably trained and or imprisoned. Uh, so, when it comes time to animate an animal character expressively, we just make them do dog shit. Yeah. Because people know how to read dog shit. Wagging tails, tilting ears. You know, yeah, turning no- around in a circle before you go to sleep. Nose on the ground to look for things. Uh, cocking the ears to be attentive. Yeah. Looking you straight in the eye to show that they're earnest and honest. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, don't try that with dingoes. That's not really a dog thing either. That's just a human thing that we put on dogs. But, yep. you know, not the point. Yeah. <laughs> there, there's a range of body language that dogs have in part because they evolved cohabiting with with humans for as long as there have been humans. And that means that there's a lot of stuff that we recognize as dog behavior that thanks to movies like these, people <laughs> think is animal behavior and it's fucking not. Yeah. Like if, if you've ever had a pet other than a dog or a cat, you've probably noticed this. It's a new set of body language to learn. People who haven't met your animal don't get it. And you have to explain it to them. You have to say, no, she's uncomfortable with that. Or like, if if you sit down rather than going to him, he'll feel more comfortable. You know, just basic shit. And there's a ton of stuff that I, when we first got our dog, our beautiful angel of a dog who is perfect and never did anything wrong. No, no, he's a cherub. Certainly not during this record that no. involved holding blankets. Not at the all. The point is that there's a bunch of stuff that I, thanks to watching movies, assumed about dogs that, as it turns out, <laughs> is kind of shitty behavior. Yeah, movies aren't super good at dogs either, but they're very bad at things that aren't dogs. Yeah, so now imagine what that looks like when you're dealing with these non-dogs, because you're watching a photocopy of a photocopy. It, yeah, it's a bit like that. Yeah. Anyway, not that Bongo spends much time being a bear, because mostly Bongo is a human yeah. with, with funny claws and weird stubby legs. Mm. Who fights Pete? <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, Pete, Pete of goofy fame, yes. Yeah, Pistol Pete, I think, oh, I think he's, he's a cat. Eh. Or is he a dog? He's probably a dog. I don't know. He's They're all kind of cat dogish. We'll get to that when we get to a Goofy movie. I mean, Goofy's supposed to be a dog. Goofy movie's not part of it, is it canon? Ha ha! Suck it! We'll find a way. <laughs> there is a list of releases that are not considered part of the canon for some reason, but, uh, you know, parallel 
And uh, maybe we'll do those a bonus if we have enough energy left at the end of this. I sat through this. You d- <laughs> I sat through this. You don't get <laughs> out of other things because, oh, that's not actually technically part of the I canon. I fulfilled the letter of my contract, <laughs> Disney animated canon. Ugh. I'm not required to do Winnie the Pooh either. Well, we can both agree on that. My notes for Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> Which I think one of the Winnie, my, Winnie the Poohs might be included. We'll find out. We'll just have one audio recording that's just us snoring. <laughs> 90 minutes of recording of me sleeping. Oh, no, come on. I'm sure one of the characters will moralize in an objectionable way and you'll have something to yell about for at least half an hour. Fucking Protestant stuffed animals. All right. Now, we've danced around it enough. You may remember that we had talked about a trigger warning for the uh, earlier segment on Hillbillies. We're going to need to do that again. So? What do you mean, Talon? How could there possibly be something worthy of a trigger warning in this cute story about a circus bear who escapes back to the wild and falls in love with a lady bear? So once again, trigger warning for domestic abuse. If you'd like to avoid it, jump to 1 hour 13. (sighs) That's not fun to do. Why is- The fuck, Disney? I mean, this is- Okay, it's not really a what the fuck, Disney. It's- What's upsetting about this shit, and that it keeps coming up, is that it wasn't remarkable. Uh Uh-huh. This was just a perfectly funny thing to put in an inconsequential fucking movie for kids. Uh, so our boy, Bongo, falls in love with the lady bear, and just as they seem to be totally hitting it off, and a a big nasty rival bear comes up, she makes her intentions clear by slapping him across the face. Our hero, I mean, not not the big Chad bear. Uh, and it turns out that this is all a humorous misunderstanding. Because as our hero later learns, like 30 seconds later, in an expositional song number, bears just slap one another to express their love. That's how you tell another bear you love them. Ugh. Just whack them as hard as you can across the face. There's yep. a dance number for this. There's a da- oh, yeah, lots of bear couples just slapping each other silly. Yeah. It's hilarious. I don't have a lot to add here. I feel like just going, all right, we're going to have to put a content warning around this is enough. <sighs> like, this is shitty. And, like, once again, they stop short of actually showing us our character full-on smacking a woman upside the head. Uh, they they pull the punch a couple of times by having him miss for various reasons. Uh, and the one time he does connect, it's like a little tap. But it's like they they knew that they had to actually go there when they wrote this stupid-ass idea. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is a pre-existing story, so we cannot blame Disney for the the choice Uh. to put this in there. But, I mean, you picked what you made into a fucking cartoon. And and the thing, we absolutely can blame them. They change stories all the time. Okay, but I think this is from the original book, since it is the crux of the conflict, such as it is. (sighs) Anyway, so, um, it's... It's just unavoidably shitty. It's, yeah. It's not nice. It's not presented as violence, but that's kind of the problem. It's just presented as a humorous, that's the way some people show their love. Yeah, and at this point in history, yeah, there's a lot of stuff bound up in this that means that a bunch of animators looked at this and a bunch of storyboarders looked at this and a bunch of directors and a bunch of uh, a bunch of presenters and producers and marketers all looked at this and no one at all went maybe couples shouldn't hit each other like maybe that's a bad thing and that indicates that this is normal enough that no one involved wanted to go 
hang on, that's fucked up. Mm. Which is to say, this is a symptom of a media landscape where violence in a couple is du jour and worth laughing about. Honeymooners style, pow, straight to the moon. Yeah, yeah. It's just presented as something that's fine and funny. And, uh, you know, the, the real tragedy is just the misunderstanding. Yeah, uh, it, it's extremely uncomfortable and it further builds on my growing resentment of Disney as an institution. Like, success is random, meritocracy is fake, Walt Disney was scum, this movie was bad. This movie was bad. Um, end of content warning section? Question mark? Uh, I don't think there's a lot more that we can add to that. As outside of this, it's very unremarkable. Um, it's got lovely forest background. Yeah. And a lot of really boring songs. Yeah. <laughs> like... You know how the whole, like, this isn't a musical? No. It's got one number performed diegetically by the the bear couple. Um, Weirdly. But everything else is, I believe, the narrator singing. Yeah. Um, and it has as much weight as you would expect when a narrator sings a song. It's It doesn't feel emotionally connected to the characters, except that they belabor the point very literally in the song lyrics every time. But, yeah. Ugh. Boy, oh boy, oh boy. It's it's upsetting in a whole bunch of different ways how mediocre this is when it is not being vile. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's really mediocre. I mean, this was no one's favorite Disney movie. This is much like the Fantasia at Home collections. Nobody remembers that this exists except nerds. Yeah. Okay, so uh, we're done with that crap. Whoo! All right, let's move on to something else that I'm definitely not going to have issues with this time. Oh! I've got some puppets for you, Talon. Fucking hell. How about ventriloquism? Uh... <laughs> they just found different things appealing in the 40s, didn't they? Oh, God. Actually, I'm going to start, because as we go into this section, our transition is Jiminy Cricket reading someone else's mail after he says, well, you shouldn't do that, and then does it anyway, because- He's this, a cop. This is our moral guardian, everyone. This is Jiminy Cricket, the voice of uh, wise morality in Disney. Don't forget that. Yep. Uh, anyway- uh, and it's an invitation to a party. Party in the biggest of quotation marks. This does literally appear to be a party where one child uh, is being entertained by a middle-aged ventriloquist and his two dolls. There are no guests. There are no other children there. There are, there are no other adults there. If Jiminy Cricket wasn't here, it would just be a child with a hat on, a party hat on her head. Presumably celebrating her own birthday alone with some puppets and a paid entertainer. Yeah. This is, this paints the saddest picture of a child. It's some dire shit. It's so upsetting. Yep. Anyway, anyway, that that's not the point of why we're here. We're here to hear a retelling of a fairy tale by this weirdo and the two dolls he bickers with. Yeah. Now, um, look, I'm not an expert in ventriloquism, but I am related to one. A little bit more knowledge than the average person, let's yeah, say. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and uh, just saying, and I say this from having seen it at a lot of birthday parties, bickering with your puppet is hack <laughs> shit. I wonder if it was already hack shit in the 40s or if this was still, you know, funny. It might be cutting edge ventriloquism. <laughs> but at the time, but like now, don't fucking back and forth angrily with your puppet. It's the most basic form of attention control. It comes across obvious. You're all telling the same fucking jokes. <laughs> Just 
do something interesting for fuck's sake. It's true, we're not really in the habit of forgiving these movies for being a product of their time, and your goddamn puppets are no exception. Yeah, and look, the other other thing is, he's not that amazing a ventriloquist. Being His a, mouth does move an awful lot for somebody who's doing this on camera and could therefore cheat. Yeah, with they have the edit available, it's and weird. so instead they decide to show you footage of him being a bad ventriloquist. <laughs> get it. Ah! I thought that was just me, like, is this harder than I think? Is it? Ventriloquism is harder than you think, but... I don't know if it is, because I think it's really fucking hard. <laughs> but I swear it's also kind of a solved problem in that if you, you know, if you're qualified and you do this for a living or whatever... You could probably do it in front of me without me seeing your lips move, right? I'm not that astute. Further to that, there's also the thing that maybe this guy's main thing is he's a voice actor. He is, after all, the voice of Jiminy Cricket. But if he's mainly a voice actor and not a ventriloquist, don't show him doing bad ventriloquism. That's true. Just edit in the audio. Yeah, I mean, there's that. Grumble, grumble, grumble. Oh, I do like that they slip the voice actor names on the invite. Yeah, that's cool. And especially that they have Jiminy go, oh, never heard of that guy. Talking about his own like, it's the oldest fucking joke in the... Old- Look, it's the oldest fucking meta joke in the book, but it still gets a giggle. It's a giggle. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then from there, we move on to a sort of retelling of Jack and the Beanstalk. Uh, sort of about it. It's a retelling of Jack and the Beanstalk. Well, you know, the instigating event is a bit different. The, the magic harp being taken away, stuff like that. <laughs> oh, but- right. It's Jack and the Beanstalk with a rich backstory. Yeah, and two extra backup jacks. Jackups, if you will. <laughs> ah, but those jackups are Donald and Goofy. Beloved <sighs> characters, Donald and Goofy. But you can't wait to spend your time with them. You love them. So at this point, I basically um, punch card with, like, I just say that the interactions of an outsized world are fun, <laughs> and this is a really legitimately interesting as a way to represent things, like the prop element of it. Yeah, that's fun. Otherwise, this is a story I got bored of when I was three. It's, uh, yeah. Talon makes punch card motion for those of you who can't see. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> got anything else about this section? Um, I have a few comments. Uh, mostly I just, I, I don't get the need to add the Prosperous Valley backstory with the magic golden harp that makes everything lush and green. And, by the way, apparently the way that the environment works is that you have to magic it into being yeah. productive and, and uh, healthy. Otherwise, shit just immediately dries up. Where did they build this town? What was it before there was a magic up? It was, it was, it's real Fisher King shit. It's fucking Scar in the Pride Lands. It's yeah. It's like a desert as soon as the magic is gone. Don't get that. Oh, by the way, they describe this as being like a, a beautiful nature's paradise. And it's literally all manufactured gardens and fields. It's not natural. Yeah. Which is it's just another very of its time kind of white ass male capitalist viewpoint. God is a man. <laughs> God is a Caucasian man and he loves the military industrial complex. Now, shut up and get me a glass of cigarette. I'm sorry, we're too poor for cigarettes. All I have is slices of bread so they function like tissue paper. Which was a cute animation touch. I liked that. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, yes, the the bread. I was just overwhelmed with embarrassment at saying that Uh, to my wife. I wasn't going to dwell on it. (laughs) I knew you were probably throwing up in your mouth a little bit by the end of that sentence. So I just wanted to let you swallow and move on. I'm fine. I think I'm fine. (laughs) Oh, you're very pink. Oh, God. (laughs) I've never seen you turn this color, actually. 
Anyway. Uh, yeah, that, that's, I, I hate that this story is so boring because there's a lot of nice animation stuff. The the sequence of the falling out of the beds in the vines and I still soft landing all the time, that's great. really like the beanstalk growing sequence. The animation on that is unnecessarily lovely. It, it's just very good. Um, I'm less psyched about the, uh, uh, you know, Donald goes crazy, crazy and becomes a murderer. Well, we all knew that was just part I, of him. Yeah, apparently so. And and I will say, I, I did I did mention this when we actually watched it, but Donald Duck at this period is the worst at violent outbursts. Oh, yeah, he's horrible. Like, just show him punch someone. <laughs> right? Well, he can't be effectual. I, the thing about Donald is that he's all just impotent rage. Nothing ever gets fixed by sure, him being angry. But he swung an axe. <laughs> like, show him ball up a fist or something. No, mostly he yells at people, waves his arms in the air, and doesn't even try? He does. And a lot of the time he's just needlessly aggressive too. Like, your your good use of Donald is someone who gets very frustrated and doesn't know how to vent that. Um, but this Donald just seems to be kind of a jerk. I don't know, maybe it's the, the X years of starvation or whatever, I don't know. If I was in this movie, I would have eaten the house by now. <laughs> yeah. I do like the the uh, the story of where we could just go and sell the cow, which clearly just means someone else somewhere has enough money to make this not a problem for you. So are they still go eat them? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, there are clearly wealthy, perfectly nice wealthy people we could eat in that town. And bonus, given this is a Disney Universe story, that person is probably some form of prey animal. <laughs> And, you know, if we fed some of them to the cow, it would probably give milk again as well. Since apparently murdering, you know, fucking beef is uh, is out of the question here, even if you're literally starving to death. I, I don't know, that child is a bit judgmental is all I'm saying. Well, you mustn't kill the cow, it's their best friend. Th- there's three of them, I'm pretty sure they're each other's best friends. And yeah, it does I don't really... know if the cow really factors into this. Yeah, they don't sleep in the same room as the cow, which gives you a good sign that they're not that good friends. No. I mean, I know a lot of people who don't sleep in the same room as their dogs, but... Yeah. I mean, not me. Yeah. My dog is perfect, so he sleeps in the bed. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, anyway, I run out of interesting stuff to say pretty quickly. Uh, really nice quality animation throughout, really nice backgrounds. Um, they really enjoyed animating the giant doing magic. I do love the jelly. Jelly is real fun. I don't know why they worked in the, the giant transforming thing. Uh, I haven't heard that in versions of Jack and the Beanstalk before. Now, that's interesting. But, so Magic Giant is not a surprise magic, to you? Magic Giant, who actually had a magic harp or or a magic um, uh, uh, key or a magic item of some variety, is in fact like well-established to me from old copies of the fairy tales. But also, remember, I came from a period where anything that was made after 1940 was suspect. So, like... Fair enough. I mean, there's always a valuable treasure that, that Jack gets and brings back. Frequently three of them. One of the things with fairy tales, especially fairy tales of this vintage, have as a problem is a sort of uh, collapsed canon. Yeah, I, I know they do evolve. And... But also there are sometimes things where the start of one story forks off into two different stories or a plot point from one story will show up in multiple stories because it's just, you know, there's lots of different permutations on these same ideas. Um, and the giant that changes shapes, you might also remember... From Puss in Boots. Well, that's what I was going to say. I'm used to that being the ending of Puss in Boots. Yeah. Where our cunning hero suggests a harmless form and then easily overpowers it. Who, by the way, in this case, actually is a cunning hero, as opposed to Mickey, 
who tried half of a plan and then fucked it up. It was so weird that they, okay, twice they have Mickey, like, proactively come up with something to do to better the situation, and both times he fails spectacularly, like, within instance. You want a bonus detail about this from the production front end? Huh? Uh, at the point where this movie was being made, Disney, Disney noted that uh, not only had Mickey Mouse fallen in popularity behind Donald Duck and Goofy, but also behind Porky Pig and Popeye. So this movie was meant to be like a push to go, hey, hey everyone, remember Mickey? Mickey's great. Oh boy. He's not particularly likable in this either. When is he ever? I mean, even for Mickey. Yeah. Like, I classic adventure Mickey is fine. He's just not interesting to me because I don't like my adventure heroes to look like silly cartoon animals. I like them to look hot. But that's not the point. <laughs> but like, even in this, like, I... The way they present him, um, well, I guess he's just kind of nothingy for the most part. Like, if I asked you what Mickey Mouse's personality is from this movie, you couldn't really tell me. Well, I don't like unions. <laughs> Whereas you could tell me who Donald and Goofy are. Mm. Even if it's as simple as, well, Donald has rage issues and Goofy's a thicko. Yeah. <laughs> like, they have personalities. <laughs> and- and Mickey to be just seems to be the dude. And to be fair, like, Mickey does have a personality. It's just he wavers wildly between being clever and a thicko. He's half goofy. And if he was a full thicko, he still wouldn't have a personality. He'd just be goofy, who doesn't <laughs> really have... He's a single character trait as as replacement for a personality. I mean, they, these are simple characters. That's fine. They're made for cartoon shorts. Which is why it's odd that they chose to put them in half of a feature film, I guess. Yeah. And it's not the last time we're going to see that either. I think it might be the last time we'll see it in the animated canon, which, you know, good fucking riddance. Uh, anywho, uh, you, you want to talk to me about the giant's lockbox talent? Do you want to? Do you want to? <sighs> Locks don't work that way. Keys don't work that way. No. Three dimensions don't work that way. This is, this is the way that Disney has represented locks <laughs> twice now. It's just, just a hole you stick a key through, and uh, then then it works. Yeah, the key. The, you see, the keyhole says, "Oh, hello, <laughs> hello, key. I know who you are." What bothers me is that we see it from both sides. Yeah, we both see the key go all the way into the box from the outside, and we see the key not protrude past the hole on the inside, except for the little knob. Yeah, but the box is, you know, a couple of centimeters thick at the wall at best, and the key is. Huge! <laughs> it's it defies uh, dimensional space, and like that's not really a cinema sin worthy of getting sh- our shits in a tangle over. Except that like Talon knows a thing or two about locks. Boy, I sure hope someone got fired for that blunder. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's just it's a pointless nitpick of something that's really annoying. There's a whole range of skills where if you're good at it, it pisses you off when you see people not appreciate that. <laughs> like, when, when you see a website in a movie, how often are you just flashes of blinding rage? Oh, well, the only websites you see in movies are branded ones, so... Now. <laughs> Old ones? But still, yes. Yeah. No, I also want to talk about the harp. Okay, so... Because, uh, like, boy, did I think they were going to put in a whole song to try and put us to sleep again. Oh, boy. But the A, they didn't, and that was kind of nice. And B, I also just fucking love that she breaks out into giving Mickey stealth tips in the song. Just like, in his right pocket. Like, that's actually ah, fun. Oh, fucking yeah. I like that. That yeah. was good stuff. Uh, that made me happy. Um, But aside from that, 
Yeah, I think we might be done, because this story doesn't... I mean, you know how this story ends. Stop me if you've heard this one before. And they feasted on giant meat forever. <laughs> Jack and the fucking beanstalk. Oh wait, it does end a little weirdly, because they choose to close out this movie by cutting back to the live-action segment, where one of the puppets is sad that the giant died. <laughs> I assume he was the goofy voice actor, so I assume he also voiced the giant. Yeah, probably. And this is also kind of a meta joke on the most basic level. Oh, to my surprise, no. The giant was voiced by Billy Gilbert. Oh, someone else. Okay. Apologies, Billy Gilbert. I didn't mean to impugn your work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, um, turns out the, the giant, despite being a murderous asshole, is uh, just fine. So don't worry, kids. It's all right. And now he's going to walk off with a piece of Hollywood on his head. Oh, yeah. He might pop up in the roof and look into your house sometime. Don't worry about it. It's probably fine. Now, that said, uh, I just want to correct something from earlier in the podcast. Oh, yes. Uh, Mortimer Snurd is one of the puppets. Oh, it's not Mickey. Okay. Yeah. Um, Mickey is Walt Disney. Yeah. Ah. Yeah. Wow. Bugger me. How did I not know that? Hand me another cigarette. Yeah. <laughs> what did you say about unions? <laughs> Get back to work. <laughs> no, the, the nature of this movie is that it is a half a movie. It is a chunk. Yeah. And the things that go into why it is the way it is are all... Backroom dealing, marketing, production, beating up on animators, dealing with strikes, pressures, and unions, and all the sort of stuff that Disney really doesn't want you to look at. So in a way, this movie, this pair of movies is a really good testament to reminding you that Disney as a corporation isn't in the business of making happy memories and good media. That is a byproduct of their primary goal which is to make themselves money. Well, yes. Literally have no other reason to exist. Happy pride. <laughs> now, that said, with all that said, with all that miserable context of why these movies are dog shit, do you want to talk about box office takes? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, whatever this is, I'm going to be unhappy about it. This is a- all of these, hmm, I want a name for this era, you know? The dog shit season. I'm going to call it the... Uh, don't pay attention to those decades, Disney era. You could also call it the bundling period. <laughs> the uh, half-ass period. So, here's the thing, alright? The portional donkey period. We we have been slightly misled in that in the case of the first movie, Make My Music, mm-hmm. it was released as a bundled movie. It was produced with the attitude that it was a bundled movie. But that did not mean that it was meant to be all watched at once, and movie theaters broke them up and screened them in sections. So it was used as shorts? Yes. Okay. I owe you an apology from the beginning of the podcast, then. Which, incidentally, because of the way Walt Disney had the contract rigged, both meant that they screened an absolute ton of the most popular segments, and the less popular segments got used less, but they all got charged rent. So... So really, this is a... Feature film, only in the sense that Disney sold it as a feature film. Yeah, it's cinema spackle. <laughs> and Make My Music cost about $1.06 million to make, and it made back about three and a half in 1947. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah, it is. It, it did gangbusters. Yeah. Now- I knew I was going to be unhappy about this. Fun and Fancy Free, uh, it did not do nearly as well. In, in the production, like, it wasn't rented out in the same way. I was going to say, did they break it up as well? Because it would have been a lot harder to, like, you can't really screen these as shorts. No. Half an hour-ish. Yeah. It, it, was, it was filmed, it was screened as one long film. Right. But 
it had also already mostly been made. So while they were making other things like Dumbo and while they were making other shorts, they had already made most of what in- went into uh, what was going to be Mickey and the Beanstalk. Uh, they mostly had to add stuff to it that included Goofy and Donald, which means that it was kind of low end on the budget, though we don't know what, that number has not been officially released, but it also made about $3 million. So on the numbers, these movies beat Dumbo. Yeah, let me tell you, I was looking at Metacritic ratings earlier, and it's really upsetting to me how high the entire period. Yeah. It's, I don't know what people saw in it that I am missing. I know that cultural context plays a big role, and surely the box office take at least is heavily related to the time period. The fact that some of that shit just does not fly now, but still, the difference is Mm -hmm. extraordinary, and more than I would have attributed just time and distance. A bunch of what went into Happy Valley had been shelved since the animator's strike in 1941. Happy Valley. Oh, Mickey and the Meatstalk? Yeah. Like the, alright. Yeah, sorry, the, the the section became Happy Valley. It was originally Mickey and the Beanstalk. And Mickey and the Beanstalk was being produced in the 1940s. Sorry, Happy Mickey. Valley in the film. Yeah. I thought it was called Mickey. It's referred to as Mickey and the Beanstalk in like all subsequent... Uh, yeah. That's weird. Yep. And by the way, there was also a bunch of stuff that got thrown out at this point in the development of Mickey and the Beanstalk, uh, which uh, winds up finding its way later into other films we're going to have to suffer through. Uh, it uh, also uh, definitely provides the basis for... More than a few Mickey Mouse video games. Yep, most of the most of the SNES and um, the like era basically looked at this movie and Fantasia and tried to womp together something <laughs> of a story out of it. This Fantasia and a couple of other choice Mickey shorts, but yeah, like every Mickey Mouse game is pick a villain, pick another character to get kidnapped, and then go through the same selection of Beanstalk level, Sorcerer's Apprentice level, uh, Library level, Candyland level. Yeah. Like, it's the same cycle. It's fascinating. Yep. Which which just continues to build on my extremely negative opinion of Disney in general, where, like, it is in the same way that Christmas music is recycling whatever happened to a boomer twice. <laughs> The entire Disney classic period and the magic of Disney is mostly just regurgitating this utter slop. Uh, I wouldn't say that because like I, I I do believe this stuff is technically contained in the classic era. But, you know, as we've talked about, nobody remembers this bullshit. This this wasn't anybody's favorite childhood Disney movie. Uh this this is just the stuff that falls into the void because you'd be like, well, of course Disney didn't release a film that was just a bunch of shorts all slammed together. Of course they didn't release a film that was just Mickey doing Jack and the Beanstalk and that was only half of it and the other half was some crap about bears. I, nobody knows this. Yep. <laughs> Everybody remembers, you know, your Cinderella's and your Lady and the Tramps. And I admit, I was not prepared for the 13-year gap between Snow White and Cinderella. I no th- one is ready for it. I honestly thought that we'd be like, if the Lady and the Tramp right now, I'd be venting about how boring I found that. <laughs> Literally, the only reason I found out about these films is because in the 90s, uh, there was a set of collector cards. Uh, that had six cars dedicated to every movie in the Disney animated canon. So I was like, okay, we got a Snow White, Bambi, what the fuck is this noise? Yeah. This looks like a Warner Brothers cartoon, what the hell? Yep. 
And, like, don't get me wrong, I think to a degree I'm housebroken, because when we get to Lady and the Tramp, which is already a movie I know I'm not <laughs> fond of, or 101 Dalmatians, I'm always going to have to go, yeah, but is it worse than Make oh, Mine Music? worlds better than these movies. I, I'm not saying you have to like them, but yeah. they are- you- it's almost impossible to compare them. They are almost different art forms. <laughs> it's- there's just no sensible comparison. That's why the Metacritic thing pisses me off so very much. Uh, yeah, I don't know if I have much more to say about this, because that's, uh, I mean, we're, we're careening down the shittiest era of Disney, and we're almost out the other end. You know, I don't feel careening. I feel like I'm just sliding okay, along a level plane. Sliding... <laughs> Through the sewer pipe yeah. of the dark years of Disney. Yeah. We can see the light at the end of the tunnel, but before we get there, we are going to have to watch Melody Time and <laughs> Ichabod and Mr. Toad. This movie, each of these movies, doubled Dumbo. Yeah, I mean, there's no justice in the world. Meritocracy <laughs> is fake. Also, the chart for the highest grossing movies on Wikipedia has total worldwide lifetime, and in brackets, at its original release. And so you have Bambi, <laughs> which is, B- Bambi is, uh, at its at its release, it was 3.49 million. That's and really big number. it's like 600 million or something. It's a quarter of a billion. Yeah. It's it, it's preposterous. <laughs> all, all the Disney classics. I was looking at this earlier myself as well. Just the, the lifetime earnings are extraordinary. The, the, the lifetime earning of Snow White is 418 million, as opposed to, Fun and Fancy Free, and Make My Music, which got 3.2 million each. I mean, yeah, see, that's a great example. That's the real test. Like, <laughs> those made their 3 million, and then nobody <laughs> then gave no a one fuck about them ever again. Put them away. <laughs> nobody wrote to Disney asking when this one will be let out of the vault. <sighs> oh. <laughs> yeah, the difference between this and a Cinderella is that people watched Cinderella for the next 50 years. Yeah. <laughs> All right, then. Uh, are we done? I think we're done. I don't think these movies deserve a second more of our time. See you next time, friends. When we'll be watching... I think I just made that clear. Melody Time and Ichabod and Mr. Turk. Cool.